Father, we do thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the confidence that we have in Christ and what he's done for us. That in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our um, inconsistencies, our sin, you are constant. And he has done a work that is finished. We don't have to worry about where we stand with you. If we place our trust in him, it's done. What a great reminder. What a great um, motivator to press hard to look like Jesus. Not to seek your approval, but because we have been approved by you in Christ. I pray that that becomes a reality in our hearts and not just our heads. Help us as we go through this passage this morning. Help it to um, affect us and not just be words on a page. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. Exodus 27, we're going to go 1 through 19. I know, I'm going too fast. I'm starting to feel like... Exodus 27, now we've worked through, in going through this latest section, we've worked through the inside of the tabernacle, we're working our way out, we're starting in the west and we're working east, and today we get to the outer court, Um, but he starts like he does with, with all of, the, um, all of the rooms of the tabernacle with the furniture. So let's look at verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits, and you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You you shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, And overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so it shall be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits, with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits, 
the hangings for the one side of the great of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, and there are three pillars and three bases. On the ba on the other side, the hanging shall be fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen twenty cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court, shall be of bronze. Okay. What do we do with this? What do you see? First, the altar. Someone walks into the temple. What's the first thing they see? What's the first thing they see? The altar. Thank you. What, how big is this? Five cubits? Five cubits? That, that is about seven feet, seven and a half feet, seven feet, half feet by four and a half feet high. So it's, it's kind of big. It's all bronze. It's right there. As soon as you walk in, that's what you see, this altar. What does it tell us that it is overlaid with bronze rather than gold? What do you remember? It's not close to what? The ark. The ark is gold. It's not. It's not near the holy of holies. Because remember, as we worked from the outs, from the inside out, we got have lesser and lesser valued metals that are being used. Um, there's a horn on each side that's part of the altar itself. It's actually part of the unit. What's What's the deal with the, the horns on the altar? What is that? Why have that? What's that used for? What does it say? Do you know? <clears throat> Ty is having restraint. What are the horns for? Says, are these like, horns? What kind of horns are we talking about here? Like ram horns? Like goat horns? Is that the out of out of the wood that it's made? It's kind of this thing on each corner. Why have those? Is it just decoration? Because we're farmers. Why have horns? Go ahead, Ty. Okay. Right. Right. It's kind of a, a claim for mercy, like asylum, mercy. Yeah. yeah. What does this tell you? We have. Um, Uzzah grabbing the ark and falling over dead in Samuel. Yes? Here, the altar, they're to grab onto if they need asylum or mercy. I mean, it wasn't just a willy-nilly thing. Hey, let's go touch the altar. But if there was a call, a plea for asylum, 
you go to the altar, grab onto the horn, and that's a sign to everyone that you're calling for a sign. What else is put on the horn? Okay, bronze. Yes, the whole thing is in bronze. What else is, oh, I don't know, sprinkled on the, on the horn? Blood. Blood. From what? From what? What kind of blood? So the sacrificial victim's blood is put on the horns of the altar. People who are claiming and pleading for asylum and safety grab onto the horns of the altar, Right? And this is in the outer court. This is the first thing they see. <clears throat> he then lists five utensils for the altar of sacrifice. What are they? And why does he list these? Pots to take away ashes. Literally, in the Hebrew, that's to take away fat in all its forms. Because when you're burning an animal... There's, there's fat involved, and it drips down. It gets everywhere. It gets greasy. So the pots are there to take that away. Um, shovels, and these are the language here. These are found only in, in reference to the temple and the tabernacle. But they're used to clean the altar of ashes and the remains. It's nasty business when you're burning an animal. Chickens. Goats. Did you really burn the chicken? I did burn the chicken. No, I don't joke about those things. I did not. I did not. I just watched it, and, and I felt very native. Um, so you have these shovels. These shovels that are used to clean the altar of the ashes and the remains of the, of the animals, of the bones and all that stuff. All right, basins. The word there is derived from, or that's used there is derived from another word meaning to toss or throw, and that's kind of what they held the blood in of the sacrifice. They would drip down into these basins, and they would use that to, to sprinkle onto the to the horns. Then you got forks. What do you think the forks would be for? It's meat forks. When you barbecue, you got to flip the meat, right? You don't want to half burn sacrifice. You've got to skewer it, flip it over, make sure it's all good and especially a burnt offering, you want the whole thing cooked through. Um, and then fire pans. Gosh, I wonder what that's for. Fire, fire. Coals that are old and drop down through the grating, maybe, or, or, or whatever, that, to, to catch these coals and things. Then there's this grating, which it's really uncertain what the use is. It may be for anything that wasn't addressed by the other utensils. Why list this stuff? Why list this? This is not exactly the um, sexiest part of Exodus. We're talking about utensils used to clean the altar. Why go here? Well, because if they don't find this stuff, then they won't be able Okay, I think you're on the right track. It takes maintenance. And God provides tools for them to maintain the altar. What happens to these tools? How are they made? Okay, 
They're overlaid in what? What does that tell you? It tells you that even the shovel is holy. The stuff that's used to dig out the ashes and the garbage from under the altar is seen as worthy, as holy, as set apart in the temple. Regardless of the tool that's being used, even this is seen as holy. Verse 6 describes another set of poles used to carry the altar, and it's similar to those to, to the ones that we that are used for the Ark of the Covenant. What's the difference? What's the difference? The metal. Okay, the metal, it's not gold, it's bronze, right? What else? What else is different? The poles are removable. What does that tell you? The ark, it wasn't removable. Why? That's right. No human hand was to touch it. You had to touch it. Yeah, exactly. And it was okay. Right. It was something that was approachable. Um, it's a holy object also. But the poles are removed and not permanent. The ark was not to be touched by human hands. But with the altar... We talked about the, the accused could be uh, could grab onto the horn of the altar and and plead for asylum. There was a t- it was able to be handled. It was more accessible to the people than the ark, and was outside of the tabernacle. All right, just an overview of the altar. Then we go to this outer court. Why have an outer court? I have this. To show a distinction between what uh, can go in and what can't go in. Okay. So you have a place for the things that aren't. It's the antithesis of what is. (laughs) (laughs) From Friday night, yes. Yes, well, let's not go Hegel on it. Um, Yes, it shows distinction between what is outside and what is inside. There's, there are curtains that are surrounding this outer court. Uh, the, the hangings keep the outside world at bay. Now, the size of this thing is estimated to be about 150 feet on east and west, no, on north and south, and then 75 feet east on the east and west sides. Um, and the east, of course, has uh, less material because it contains only the entrance into the tabernacle structure, and all the pillars are to be the same size and height and bound together. With silver, so we have this this again this construction language that they would be very familiar with, which they would be very familiar. Um, and then it says, again, all the utensils for every use are to be made of bronze. That's constructing the tabernacle, and the and the utensils we've seen to maintain the tabernacle, to maintain the altar. They're all to be covered in bronze. What does this tell you? Okay. The tools used for constructing the building are set apart and made holy. For building the complex. The tools used to maintain and 
tend to it are also set apart and made holy. In other words, it's a matching set, and the structure itself is not more important than the priest. Just like the church, the people who serve behind the scenes are not less important than the priest. That's something I was going to point out. The, the people that had to use these tools were not any less important mm. than any other time. They're using holy tools to create this building. God uses them to create the tabernacle, the temple. Um, we made the observation last week that there were two veils or curtains in the, in the temple. There was one between the holy place and the holy of holies, and then there was one between the outer court here and into the holy place. When Christ died, which curtain was ripped? The inside one, between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And we discussed what was the point of leaving the other one, between the outer court and the Holy Place. What was the point of that? Not everybody has access to Christ. Not everybody has access to the presence of God. Only those who are priests. And we made the point that in Christ... He is building a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a peculiar people, very peculiar. <laughs> to be in the presence of God, you've got to be a priest. And the only way that you can be a priest is to go through Christ. To drive that point home, again, what's the first piece of furniture a person would see when they come into the tabernacle? The altar. The altar. What is an altar used for? What is an altar used for sacrifice for atonement? Right. In the outer court. So the first step to coming to God is understanding how sinful we are. We need an atonement. We need a substitute. To go into this place, you first have to have a substitute. And be ordained as a priest. Humanity cannot approach God unless it is through the means of shed blood. There's no forgiveness, no fellowship with God without a substitute for sin. The Old Testament, we see shadows, types, hints of what's to come, yes? Hebrews 13.10. It's an odd religion we have. We don't have any altars in Christianity, really. I mean, we have some places that we may go up and kind of pray at and stuff like that, but we don't have sacrifice open and obvious in Christianity, do we? Hebrews 13.10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. What does that mean? What's the author of Hebrews saying there? What's our altar? What's our altar? Jesus. Always a good answer in Sunday school. Jesus. John Owen says it this way. The altar which we now have is Christ alone and his sacrifice. For he was both priest, altar, and sacrifice all in himself 
He's sufficient. He's sufficient for you to stand before the Father. To stand before him not only made righteous or right with him, but made useful. Um, I find it incredibly interesting that it's not just the place that's set apart. That just really struck me this week as I was going through this. It's not just a place that was set apart, but the means of the construction and the maintaining of the place is set apart. It's all covered in bronze because it's all declared holy. Even the tools that are used to scrape burnt fat off the bottom of the altar are holy and useful to him. Who wants this? I want that job. I can't even clean my own grill at home. And yet this very mundane, menial job, the tool that is being used here is seen as holy. How are we used to construct the temple? Okay. Okay. So there's there's fellowship of maintenance, building up the most holy faith. It says in Ephesians. It's another way we build the, the temple. Yes. Right. And also in, um, forget where, we are holy stones that we are. The living stones, stones, yeah. Living stones. Yeah, First Peter. Are placed to actually form the temple. So we, we are, the, it's not like we build the temple, we are the pieces of the temple. Yes. And yet, God uses us to build it as well, doesn't he? When we share the gospel and someone comes to faith in Christ, is that not building yet another part of the temple? Isn't that adding yet another tool with which to maintain the temple? And aren't they both declared holy, covered in something foreign to themselves? The same metal as the altar? Seeing these kinds of pictures in the Old Testament, do you understand how the Reformers got the idea of priesthood of the believer? How they got the idea of all vocation is holy because it's being done as unto the Lord. Every tool here, every one of them covered in bronze, same metal as the altar. What we would normally think is nasty work is seen as holy in the work of the temple. Um, whatever nicks and scars may be underneath in these tools, if you are in Christ, you are covered with a foreign precious metal known as righteousness. It's the same metal as the altar, the altar himself. 
Romans 4, 3 through 8. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Covered by the sacrifice on the altar, covered by something foreign to us, but of the same substance as the altar. Not only are, is the, are we blessed to receive his forgiveness, but blessed to joyfully receive any other good gifts the Lord may see fit with which to bless us. Do you, do you understand that? I mean, sometimes things come along that are good gifts that are on top of the grace he's given us to be in Christ. Yes? Don't despise them by clinging to your guilt. That's not repentance. Don't despise his good gifts in all their various forms through moping around that you're not worthy. You're right. You're not. But he is. Christ is. And you're covered in him. What, what effect should that have on us as we work this out together? How should we relate to each other with that in mind? I'm, I'm a fire pot. Actually, Tammy's a fire pot. But uh, maybe I'm more of a shovel. I don't know. I'm definitely a tool. I'm definitely, thank you. As are you. Um, so... What do we do? How do we relate to each other? Even though we may have different gifts, different callings, different uses. We need to look at each other as if we're all covered in robes. What does that mean? Teach you as if you are Christ. That every, that every piece has value and has a place. And no one piece is better than another piece. Paul describes that a certain way, doesn't he? talks about the body that um, does the hand say I have no need of the eye does the foot say I have no need of the nose I don't know I don't know how, I how all this. but he talks about the different pieces of the body that they're all needed they're all necessary and here based on the picture that we have in the temple they're all holy they're all set apart Tammy said we should see each other as Christ you're Christ to me not that you're perfect and atone for my sin. That's not what that means. He said, I treat you as if you were Christ, not this flawed person that I see, but who you've been declared to be in Jesus if you're in Christ. 
that has radical, radical implications in how we deal with each other. Um, let's look at Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. I don't know why I keep going to Hebrews in this book. <laughs> through him, then let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It's not that Christianity doesn't require sacrifice. It certainly does. The things that distract me from Jesus, the things that um, cause me to be foggy in my thinking, foggy in my emotions, I need to put to death. I need to press forward. I need to look like Christ. I need to daily die to myself. He says, give a sacrifice of praise. Why would praise be a sacrifice? Because you're admitting that you didn't do something. What do you mean by that? Okay. That, that what I have is not of me, it's all a gift from God. Right. And giving him praise for that puts me, puts my pride. And above. when we're in pride and praising, and it's a sacrifice, what are we doing emotionally? I feel that. Do I feel that? If, if, pri- if praise is a humbling of yourself, does that feel good? Woohoo! I get to look like a goofball by thanking somebody else for something that I really think I did, but maybe I didn't do, and did I really do it? And maybe I didn't do it, and God did it, God gave it to me, I'm not all that. Does that feel good, humbling yourself in praise? And I, and I don't mean humbling in that. You have to do externals. Some people do externals when they praise, and that's fine. But that's not necessary in the humbling part of praise. It's a thankfulness to God that you don't always feel. Right? It's a sacrifice to be thankful when our natural bent is, I did this. I have this. Look at me. It's a sacrifice of praise. Right. When things aren't well, when we're all torn up inside, when we're all, everything's swirling. To be thankful is a sacrifice because our emotions are not lining up with necessarily what we're saying. Doesn't make it less true, does it? Just because I may not feel it, it's still true that he's God and I'm not. It's still true that he's good, that he's merciful, and that his... um, that his kindness toward me is everlasting. It's a sacrifice of praise. Let's go out with this. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Is a lamp something internal based on how we feel? I feel light. There it is. No, a lamp is external. 
objective, isn't it? Something we hold close. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. <coughs> Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. Severely afflicted, crying for life, but accept my freewill offerings of praise, the sacrifice of praise. I hold my life in my hand continually. Does that sound like a safe position to be in? I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. My joy is not based on what I see around me. My joy is based upon what you've said, what you've promised, the truth I know. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. There's a work there, isn't it? I incline my heart. Other places in this same psalm, he says, incline my heart. So who's inclining? God's inclining his heart or is he inclining his heart? Yes. yes. That's exactly right. We fight for right emotions. We fight for right thinking because it is God who works in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2. Any thoughts on this? When you were talking about That's good. Yeah. And I mean, that just proves that he is the ultimate. Yeah. Because they're clutching him, asking for forgiveness. And he's accessible. And he's accessible. He's a, we don't have a high priest who's unfamiliar with our suffering, but in all ways is tempted like us, yet without sin. And he imparts that holiness, that without sin, to us. Good. else he's accessible he's holy same substance on him is on the tools try to think what else there'll be a test later all right don't use your holy tool for unholy purposes hmm all right Father, it's very difficult uh, sometimes to, to trust the objective reality that you've declared for us in Jesus. That your righteousness is revealed and that you forgive sinners because Christ died for us. That your mercy is revealed 
and that you raised him from the dead on the third day and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And that you, in your great wisdom and kindness, have taken scarred, fallen people and clothed them in robes that are foreign to them, that show righteousness, that show adoption as your sons and daughters. None of us are worthy of that, and yet you have been so kind to us. How could we not respond in thankfulness? How could we not respond emotionally in a right way that shows our thankfulness? And yet so often our hearts are clouded with this isn't right, or this isn't working, or I'm in this situation, or I'm in that. Forgetting the goodness of God in all things. Incline our hearts, Father, to love you and trust you. Thank you for making Christ accessible to us. We need him every day. We cling to him for asylum, convicted criminals that we are. And you've taken convicted criminals and have clothed them in the garments of authority and blessing and righteousness. Give us grace to walk in that mindset, to treat each other as we would treat Christ himself. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.